You're listening to Diffuse Now with Ken Anstis and Isla Krem. If you've ever thought, man, alternative fund structures really haven't changed in the last few decades, then you haven't met this week's Diffuse Cap expert, John Phillips. John has been coming up with out-of-the-box fund structures for far longer than he'd care to admit. There are even two laws on the books in Canada created specifically around his structures. We promise you're about to learn something new. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Hopefully you met some interesting folks in the uh, short initial breakout room there. Just to give, my name is Kenny Estes, and just to give you a little idea of what's on tap, we're going to very briefly talk about Diffuse Tap and Diffuse, and then we're going to talk to the speaker of the day over here, John Phillips. Um, it's going to be very interesting. And then we're going to do two more rounds of breakout rooms, just like the ones you did, with the opportunity to ask a couple of more questions in between. Uh, and why do we do this? Because Diffuse Tap is where you are. That's the name of the event. It's every Wednesday at 10. Three quarters of our time together each week is networking with other interesting folks in these in various spaces, alternative asset space, quarter of which is like we have today, Mr. Phillips, tell, kind of educating us about something. And then as a reminder, we do um, periodically spin out new fund launch events and uh, the Diffuse launch. The next one is just coming up. So do be sure to join us to talk about DD30. But what is Diffuse? We are an alt fund incubator. We uh, work with GPs or internally, whatever makes the most sense, to launch new differentiated uh, alternative asset investment funds where we think there's a lot of edge. Um, one of which is Regiment Echo. I saw AJ here on the line and it's a um, television and film finance fund that is uh, working towards its first close as we speak. And another one that is kind of a Diffuse branded one is Diffuse Digital 30, the one we're doing the launch event for, which is, as far as we know, the world's first index fund for digital assets. So top 30 cryptocurrencies, excluding stable coins and wrapped coins, monthly rebalanced, really trying to make something that looks a little bit institutional and it just doesn't exist in the market for various reasons. Today's speaker is Mr. John Phillips. So I'm really bad at introductions, so John, as a reminder, you might be muted, but do you want to do a uh, brief introductory spiel on yourself? I can. Uh, about 35 years in the business, all in developing products, uh, 15 different jurisdictions globally. Uh, you know, everything from broadly distributed funds to private placements to a variety of one-offs. Uh, in Canada, there are three specific uh Revenue Canada laws that are a result of me putting funds together that uh, push their limits. Um, same thing here in the States, not three, we just have one. But um, my job is really to figure out a viable and legal solution to any fund structuring problems. So I've been, uh, most of the Chicago-based firms, Guggenheim, Calamos, Nuveen, First Trust, at different points in time, building product for them. I've been independent for the last, uh, I think, 10, 11 years, uh, building product on a contract and solving issues from uh, Brazil to Canada. Awesome. Thanks so much for the intro. Nice. And uh, I think we'll just hop straight in with, uh, with a bunch of questions to make sure we get the most out of your time here. Um, maybe we'll start off with, with something obvious, but obviously the most important. Um, how does a fund structure really influence a GP's ability to fundraise? Um, fund structure is probably a secondary or tertiary answer. I mean, the first thing is uh, somebody raising funds is what are they doing it for? Am I 
funding a specific company. Am I planning to go IPO? Who am I selling to, et cetera? Once you get there um, and you know those different answers, you can create a fund that basically allows the GP to know who he's going to, under what circumstances, and where the pitfalls in either Securities Act exemptions or 40 Act exemption issues are. So it's really about knowing who you're selling to, what you're selling, and what you want the end result to be. And then the fund structure really works for that GP to reach those goals. Okay. So um, people that are kind of, let me ask you this. So what's a creative fund structure? People, a lot, there's a lot of VC in the room, a few hedge funds, they're doing, you know, relatively standard reg D funds. What are kind of some of the other options that you run into or where you start thinking outside of the box you, you run into? Uh, one of the current ones right now, and it's a little bit more of a registered product is a SPAC. Uh, you know, some of your blank check companies are getting back into uh, back into vogue. In fact, I read a, an article the other day that SPACs were outperforming regular IPOs. Uh, in the more private placement world, you know, it, it's really the Reg A's. Reg A plus is where you're really intending to raise funds for an OTC kind of listing. Um, Reg D's where you've, uh, you've lost your 505, but your 506s and 506Cs. Um, are really a great way to raise funds for a specific purpose. Your biggest issue is you got to make sure you're not dealing in uh, investing or you might have to get a 3C1 or a 3C7 exemption from the 40 Act. So um, recently built a a master limited partnership. Uh, Again, a, a very interesting answer. When you're doing broad distribution, you want a list, but you're dealing with hard assets, not securities. And that was uh, an interesting interesting placement. So there are a couple interesting structures. I think one thing that many American managers forget is that there are good reasons to look at maybe the Cayman or Dublin or Luxembourg. And I built a couple structures there that were interesting and were built more around total return swap and debt to avoid some uh, tax and uh, uh, control foreign corporation issues. So there, there's a bunch of uh, words in there that I think the first time I spoke to you, they were the first time I'd heard them. So I'm, I'm assuming much of the audience is this, in the same position. Master limited partnership, you kind of went to that quickly. What is a master limited partnership and what kind of are, you know, Cliff's Notes versions of, of pros, cons of, of going with something like that, which is relatively innovative? Yeah, and I don't know how innovative it is. It's sort of one of those products that come and go uh, with Vogue. I think the best way to look at a master limited partnership is it is a registered structure that can hold uh, non-securities, maybe uh, real estate, uh, timber, um, different commodities, which are difficult to put into a, a listed 40 act or a listed 33 act structure. Um, but with this master limited partnership, you can broadly distribute because you could list them. And so it's one of the few sort of LP structures that works well listing on exchange for broad distribution. And it's really people have used them or looked at them for crypto because crypto won't fit into more of a 40 act or 33. Stru- well, it'll, it'll work in a 33 structure, but not a 40 act structure. So here's a way to bring a non-security to the market for broad distribution where it wouldn't work in a mutual fund or an ETF. One of the questions, and you mentioned this earlier around um, you know, foreign structures, 
What are some of the benefits of, for example, locating your entity in, let's say, the Caymans? Um, what are some of the benefits there, maybe for, for U.S. investors to be able to invest in those vehicles, master feeder structures, et cetera? Uh, could you highlight some of these bits and pieces? Uh, you know, Cayman, as places like Dublin or Luxembourg or Mauritius or some of these other ones, are really built for tax benefit. Say in Dublin, you can raise a fund and... Here in the States, we are taxed on transactions for tax, uh, you know, sales and all that kind of stuff. In Dublin and in Cayman, the fund structure itself does not expose it to tax. You've got to be careful in, in many senses because if you've got a Cayman or Dublin structure, you want to get U.S. investors into it, you can run afoul of the 144A. You can run afoul of 40 Act if you exceed 100 investors. Um, but generally, you're going overseas to take advantage of fund structures that are tax efficient, and you can do investing in especially non-securities and um, hedge fund-like structures that you wouldn't be able to do in the States. You are limiting yourself to qualified and sometimes accredited investors, though, and you have to be careful about your number limits. But uh, they do give you a tax advantage and sometimes the ability to do structures and uh, invest in things that you couldn't here in the States. Fascinating. So some more flexibility, some tax efficiency. Uh, well, we're talking about international. I've seen a lot of, there's a lot of interest lately in, in listing in Canada, whether it's on the, I think it's CEF or the TSX. Um, and people are starting to figure out or try to figure out how to apply that to something that looks more like an investment vehicle or potentially a fund. Uh, you said you had three laws in Canada that were written because of you. I have zero, by the way. I think most people also have zero. So that's very interesting. Uh, but what, what does that look like taking a fund or, or kind of way to, to get that in Canada? What are the advantages, disadvantages in your mind? Well, one of the things we have right now is I help structure a cannabis fund here in the States. And one of the issues here is because cannabis or companies touching the plant, as they refer to them, cannot uh, list or sell broadly here in the States. We have discovered that the CSE and the NEO market in Canada are exchanges where anybody can buy a security, but the CSE and the NEO do not comply with US federal law. The TSX and the TSX Venture, two of the main uh, uh, exchanges in Canada do comply with U.S. law. People who want to put together, and you can do a fund on the CSE. I was talking to them about listing some of uh, a client's ETFs up in Canada on the, uh, on the NEO and the CSE. Um, you can list a fund up there uh, and it can invest and operate, say, in cannabis where here in the States it couldn't. And because it's listed on a recognized exchange, a U.S. person could invest as long as they've got a, uh, a broker-dealer that can uh, sub-custody their assets in Canada. So that's one of the reasons that CSE or NEO works is that uh, it isn't, they don't comply with U.S. federal law. Most of the time, uh, GPs will have already started the process of setting up their fund. And, and at this point, they have a structure in place. They work with a lawyer, et cetera. What did somebody do to troubleshoot some of the issues that they might be um, experiencing? Or they're trying to raise funding as we speak, and they're running into some zesty uh, LP questions that are referring to structures. What can they do to troubleshoot their own structure to see if they might be hampering their own fundraising efforts? Uh, there's really two things you need to look at. And a lot of times, um, the PPM itself is generally fairly straightforward. It's describing what you're going to invest in. 
I think there are times when you may want to come back and change some of the fee parameters. So if you found out that it doesn't work, your problem there is that then you have to sort of make that apply to people who've been in the structure. Everybody needs to be treated the same unless they can be identified as specifically different for some specific reason. A lot of times I'm finding people are really trying to go back and change more of the, not tax, but maybe the accounting side of the business. And that's really something that you go to your local accountant to try and figure out how to track certain characteristics that are creating a tax problem or that your limited partners are getting exposure that they don't want. And sometimes you can correct that. That's mostly a uh, uh, either a, an accountant or, or a lawyer who deals more with the accounting side of those funds. But most of the time I'm seeing any changes once you get up and running, it has to do with either the sales charge and the fees, and it's usually the, the, the uh, reps aren't getting paid enough, um, or two, you're, you're trying to, to solve a problem where your exposures, usually tax exposures for either expenses or revenues, are uh, need to be adjusted. And hopefully you find that early before you bring too many people under the umbrella. Just a quick knock on on that. How do you find that out? Like you're out there raising money. Uh, do investors come back and be like, hey, you're accounting and you're, you're not paying and replacing agents enough? Or like, what are the, uh, what, where does the feedback come from? Uh, your feedback is going to come from initially from your, your broker dealer network. They're running into problems as they're trying to sell this product to their clients. Um, sometimes it's even earlier than that where they come back and say, you know, what, you're not paying me 8% sales charge on this? So, um, you know, it, that's one of your early warnings. The, the broker-dealer network is sort of giving you um, a focus, uh, an informal focus good group response. And a lot of times that's from their own needs or from their client needs. I think your, your accounting things are usually after the first tax year. When that, when that tax... Uh, K9 or whatever it is comes in K1s or hopefully not a K8 comes in. That's when you find things. Yeah. They'll look at it and go, what? This is what I bought. And so you have to deal with those kind of uh, accounting issues. And the latter is probably what I see more of than the former. One of the questions that came up in chat, and this is kind of comes back to the types of structures, uh, rolling VC funds, kind of gain popularity um, a little bit with uh, within some of the last 18 months or so, especially for smaller seed rounds, um, that and kind of, you know, going SPV by SPV. What is your thinking around, um, around rolling, uh, rolling fund structures versus a standard fund? Could you, uh, my computer glitched on me. Can you ask that one again? Sure. And what are your thoughts on rolling uh, fund structures? It's one of the um, audience questions. Yeah, you know, it's that one's one I'm not that familiar with. We have, I've done very few VC funds. And most of the, when you're in a Reg D world, which is a securities tax exemption, you really can't do a whole lot of rolling. And when you're in a 3C1 or 3C7, which is a 40 act exemption world, uh, the sevens you can do stuff, but the ones you can't. So I'm not real familiar with the VC and that kind of uh, fund description. You've ended up, you, you found a, uh, you found a wall where my experience ran into it. 
<laughs> it's just too boring is really what it is. We, <laughs> yeah. We like the more just esoteric. Simple, but yeah, exactly. It's not advanced enough. Where's the fun in that? Well, and, <laughs> you know, the, the VC and PE world especially are highly specialized. And even though they have the same um, problems to make sure they're exempted from the right um, listing requirements. So it's, you got to be careful because most of them will have to look at uh, uh, Securities Act or 33 Act exemption. But at the same time, if they're dealing too much in buying and selling underlying securities, they could be caught in a 40 Act and deemed to be a registered investment company, which is a major disaster. And so most of them should or could or, or you know they should consider a 3c1 exemption but then that sort of lays on people limits you only on a 3c1 you can only sell to 100 investors okay. so it, it's it's kind of a problematic world you just have to know where your exemptions are and what they include so in a in a reg d world you got to be careful that you don't have uh, what are considered to be mirror offerings but uh, in the rolling world that was a little outside my, my territory. We got a couple questions, actually, um, going back to master feeder structures. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to set up a master feeder. They're both kind of along the same lines. Like, where should the master be? Where should the feeder be? And then, like, Caribbean islands seem to be popular. Why is that? Is there advantages and disadvantages of whatever BVI versus Caymans versus the Bahamas in your experience? Most of them are fairly fairly narrow differences. It really comes down to if I'm selling, say to, uh, and I've got a predominance of Southeast Asian investors, I would go to the Caymans every time. If I am looking at more Latin American investors, BVI, some of these. So a lot of it has to do where potential investors, both high net worth, accredited or institutional are comfortable working. So I structured a deal out of the Caymans because we believe that a good chunk of our investors were Japanese. And that is an area that they have a high level of comfort with. If I'm selling to Europe, I tend to go into Dublin now, Hmm. unless it's a hard asset structure, then I'll go to Luxembourg. But it really has to do with, I mean, there are nuances in the law. Most of these are tax advantage environments. Um, so those are considerations, but a lot of times it is more about who you're selling it to and where they are institutionally comfortable dealing with. And a lot of times that has to do with uh, tax treaties and their tax authorities in the country that they're investing from are familiar with certain structures in certain jurisdictions. So I actually, when I'm deciding on like a, uh, a Cayman or European or even a Mauritius kind of environment, those have more to do with who my investors are than what my investment is. And that's uh, one of the sound bites that I'm surprised you haven't dropped yet, which is uh, you've given to us multiple times is always start with your investor and then work backwards. Yes. Who am, I, yeah, then, who am I selling this to? And then I can tell you a bunch of stuff based on that, but uh, I can build you a beautiful structure in a completely inappropriate place. If I don't know who you're selling it to. Gotcha. Well, 15 minutes about what we do for uh, the non-interactive version. So we're going to do breakout rooms. And then in between the breakout rooms, we'll pick up another couple of questions from the chat. So feel free to chuck some in there, guys and gals. Uh, Add a gift for the breakout room. This isn't pitching, it's networking. So please just don't try to sell something. 
no a-holing, should go without saying. Um, we don't do a full participant list. So if you find somebody you want to connect with, um, swap details then and there. But we do have a very active Telegram channel. And um, I might have actually glossed over a talking point. That Telegram channel is starting to spin out in-person events, including the first one in Boston in just a couple of weeks. So uh, hop on there and see what that's all about. But Isla, do you want to uh, talk a little bit about the breakout room and give them a topic? Yeah, absolutely. So teed you guys all up. You're going to be uh, four to five people in each room. And uh, excitingly enough, uh, the next question for you to discuss here, just as a starting point, is uh, what kinds of fund structures, interesting, clever fund structures, have you seen or have you tried yourself that turned out a lot better than you thought was possible? Um, so think about different fund structures you've seen or tried out yourself that actually were a much better solution than the just your standard run of the mill. So I will pop you into rooms now and we should see you back here in about 10 minutes. All right, welcome back everyone. Hopefully you had a good chin wag in the breakout room and met some interesting folks. I know ours uh, ended too soon, which is usually a pretty good sign. Um, so we have a question here from, let's see, Joe. Joe, and I think I saw it twice, but it might've been Joe Malam twice, um, but he wanted to talk about, and uh, John, you're probably muted again. He wanted to talk about QSBS as it applies to funds. Um, I know there's certain things you need to do to qualify it. What is QSBS? What do you need to do? Why do people need, should they be considering it? That was a question for me. It's a question for you. Yeah. I, uh, this is, this is like the, uh, the rolling VC funds. This is outside my experience. Oh no, we caught you up. Apologies. All no right. I, one of the things I've learned over the years is you got to know what you don't know. Okay. Fair enough. Well, as I understand it, Ted, QSBS is a uh, tax break that you can get, but you have to be structured as a non-pass-through entity at the minimum and maybe a C-corp. But as a whole other area that I am not the expert on other than what I just said. So, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that, makes, that makes total sense. So then I guess we had a couple of questions here. Let's see. Um, we talked a lot about like having you're in the U.S. Where do you set up your feeder to allow for international investors, figure out what they are and work backwards? What about the other way around? So Carlos had a question. Um, I don't recall exactly where he's based, but somewhere not in the U.S. Um, if you want to tap into U.S. investors from an external jurisdiction, what's the best way to go about that? Or is it, you know, it's all contingent upon, again, where you're coming from? Yeah, tapping into U.S. investors. The U.S. is... Uh probably the most problematic jurisdiction, uh, both to both for the investor, the U.S. investor, as well as non-U.S. investors. So, you know, we had a group out of Europe that wanted to tap in the U.S. And to do that, you generally have to come and register. You have to give an RIA. Uh, there's a variety of other things. And so what we did for them is that we, and it was unique in the sense that they had a, a, an index, and there's a unique rule, especially under, under the new 40 Act, C, uh, excuse me, 6C11, which is the new 40 Act rule that describes an ETF. Coming in as an index provider, you are exempted under the publisher law from being registered. So if a non-US, in, uh, a non-US manager wants to get in the US market in a less expensive short-term way, one of the best ways is to come in and work with an existing sponsor on an index. So you're not a manager, so you don't have to register under that environment. You get your uh, pass 
for lack of a better term. You get your pass through being a publisher exemption and doing index. Now that is a a 44, excuse me, a 40 actor, a 33 act pass. It's very difficult to come in and set up a private placement structure. You basically have to come in and partner with a U.S. firm or some U.S. people that can do the work for you. Um, if you're structuring a product overseas and you want U.S. investors, which is the best route usually, uh, if you are doing a product that is limiting your U.S. exposure to 100 or less, you're okay. Once you exceed 100, you have to register in the States. We, uh, I developed a couple years ago for a group that was doing something. I developed what we called a expat note. And it was basically a way for non-U.S. registered funds to bring in U.S. investors, whereby the U.S. investor came in through a Dublin structure to invest where because it was through a total return swap and debt, the 100 investor didn't count. We avoided PIFIC and CFC rules, which are one of the big rules for getting U.S. investors in, and basically got unlimited number of investors who could invest in non-U.S. registered funds. So it, it uh, again, if it is a non-U.S. registered fund or structure, you're going to run up against your numbers problem regardless of what you do, unless you can do what we did and create a note. Gotcha. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, create a solution there. Uh, we're going to do one more round of breakout rooms, and then we're going to probably give you one last question at the end there, if that works for you, John. But Isla, are you ready with breakout rooms? Ready to go. And uh, the next question for everybody is, tax optimization. What are some of the things that LPs have requested off you in the fundraising process? We certainly hear a lot of those requests when we are chit-chatting with both lawyers and LPs. So I'd love to give you all a chance to exchange on that topic. So I'm going to open all rooms. See you back here in 10 minutes. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Hopefully you had some good chats in there. Um, my room was funny. They actually didn't introduce themselves. They made me talk the whole time, which, as you know, I don't like to do. So that's pretty funny. Um, but it was mentioned that we uh, we should give you more resources if you wanted to engage with the community. Uh, we have just this week actually launched a brand new website all about our Diffuse Digital Initiative. So we will make sure to include that when we send the follow up here today. Um, so let's see. One more question for... Joe, or, uh, for um, John. John, the question is, and this is a softball, people want to learn more about this. Where do you go? Is there an ebook? Is there some resource that you could point them to? Or is it just pay you a consulting fee and you'll, you'll do it all for them? And you might be muted again, by the way. Um, I'm sure there is a klutz book that has to do with it. Um, biggest problem is it's a moving target. And there rarely is one clean answer for one clean question. Obviously, the best route is to first sort of go in and, and test your lawyer for a bit of free advice and description. Again, you, to, to come to me, it's, uh, it can be a process that you better know who you're selling to and what exactly you're selling to get a product answer. But yeah, it's, it's always interesting. It's, I, I don't know if there is a book Certainly, you can read the 40 Act or the 33 Act regulations and see, see what they say, but it's, uh, you know, you need a legal degree to interpret them most of the time. So, unfortunately, it, it really is going to people that have the experience that can kind of help guide you through what you're looking for. 
Gotcha. Sounds good. And we're at the top of the hour. So we like to uh, close it. We'll make sure, John, your contact information is in the follow-up email. Um, but just a couple wrap-up items, if I can find the thing. There we go. Telegram is Telegram. Check it out. The link is in the, I'll just put it there, in the chat. And then also it will be in the follow-up email. Um, did you, oh, I should probably make myself bigger, shouldn't I? Let's try this. Bam. Uh, next week, digital asset bets. We're diffuses. Um, the, we got a couple of funds down coming down the pipe right now in digital assets. We're going pretty heavy in that direction. So next week is all about that. And then also, I mentioned before that we people in the Telegram group in this community have started spontaneously organizing um, meetups. So Michael Gale and Stephen Burnham are kind of two diffuse ambassadors, and they're hosting a meetup in Boston on June twenty second. So reach out to them if you're not if you're in the area and you want to hang out or just hop on Telegram and you can see them there. Um, so I guess then with that, it's extra special thanks to John for donating some of your time here today and everybody else for showing up. Thank you so much. And Isla, did I forget anything? I seem to. Nope, that is all good. And I've just sent out the follow-up email, so you should have received that in your inbox right now. Um, we will see you next week and keep an eye out for the transcript of this. If you want to pass on the, the insights. Hey, hey, Kenny, Henry here. Can I sneak in a quick question? I'm just curious. I think you mentioned Boston in-person uh, events. Do you have any for New York City? I presume your audience here, quite a few should be from New York City. Any thoughts on that? Thank you. We will, uh, we, we'll, we'll see what we can do. Um, we'll <laughs> pick the brains of one of our ambassadors and uh, and then we will let, make got, it happen. Got anything in Puerto Rico? I'm going to go speak at a, a big uh, conference in Puerto Rico. So I'm teasing. Feel free to organize <laughs> it and pay for everybody's ticket to go. Th <laughs> thanks, Kenny Isla and this uh, guest speaker for all the good information as Thank usual. You. Thank you, Isla. Thank, Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you. You've been listening to Diffuse Tap with Isla Krem and Kenny Estes. If you enjoyed these conversations, join us for the live version every Wednesday-ish at 10 a.m. Central. In addition to the Fireside Chat, the live event features three rounds of networking in small groups with alternative fund GPs, LPs, and supporters from around the world. Log on to www.diffusefunds.com to register yourself now.